0: Welcome to the World Geography Podcast with Dr. Thomas Larson. Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean represent arguably some of the most misunderstood regions to Americans in the United States. The region comprises the mainland countries of Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. To the east of the mainland is an islands called the Caribbean which comprises 2 subregions. The Greater Antilles includes the large island nations of Cuba, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. Puerto Rico, part of the United States, is also located here. The Lesser Antilles includes a constellation of tinier islands, including Trinidad and Tobago, along with the Virgin Islands and Montserrat, both owned by the United Kingdom. The Caribbean holds numerous other islands that are not listed here, The theme of this podcast and the next is rebellion in many of its manifestations. Rebellion refers to the resistance of a less powerful group against a more powerful one. Rebellion comes in the form of political protests, overthrows of political power, and expressions of resistance through art, music, and poetry. Landscapes of Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean are filled with examples of rebellion. This week, we will explore rebellions against common colonial narratives, as well as the first slave-led rebellion in the New World. Much of this week's discussion will be centered on the island of Hispaniola, which will gain much more significance as we move forward. And for those of you who don't know where Hispaniola is located, I strongly recommend looking at a map before you begin listening to this podcast. That way you can associate what we're learning with What is on the map? Now, whenever I travel to a new place, I typically drop my bags at the hotel. I venture outside and I pick a direction. Rarely do I travel with an itinerary. Such a method allows places to surprise you with the unexpected. A couple years ago, I traveled to San Jose, Costa Rica for a conference. San Jose is located in Costa Rica's interior. It is a congested, dirt-under-your-fingernails city, where much of the commerce and government administration occurs, much like the Wall Street and Washington, D.C. of Costa Rica just rolled into one if the United States were reduced from 330 million people to 5 million. One day, I decided to play hooky from the conference and spent a day scouring the city. On that November day, I noticed protest art, graffiti and murals on buildings and memorials, making a political statement. At one point, I came across a statue of Cristobal Colón, the Spanish translation of Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colón. Columbus, as we were all taught in grade school, sailed the ocean blue in 1492 to the New World, the first of four voyages to the Americas. The memorial to Columbus featured the colonist with a cape, a pointy hat, soldier's armor, and a giant sword. His brass figure looked like it was recently covered in red paint, perhaps a symbol of blood on his hands. Beneath the statue was the graffiti saying, quote, In 1502, llegó el pirata Colón, which translates roughly to In 1502, pirate Columbus arrived here. This week is Christopher Columbus Day, a yearly American event that has been the chance to celebrate the meeting of the Old and New Worlds. In 1492, Columbus first laid eyes on the New World when he made landfall on the island of Hispaniola, which comprises modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Prior to Columbus's arriving, Hispaniola is estimated to have had around 8 million people on it. By the year 1500, not much more than eight years later the population dwindled to half a million. Christopher Columbus turned out to be a very ruthless, murderous governor of the territory. In 1495, Columbus forced the Taino indigenous people to hand over whatever goods they had of value, including especially gold. The Taino were enslaved and forced to work in gold mines and agricultural fields. Those who did not or could not comply had their hands cut off, which would mostly result in death from the person bleeding out. By 1540, most Taino indigenous peoples were either dead or sold off into slavery. One Catholic Dominican friar named Antonio de Montesinos saw what was happening to the Taino peoples and claimed to be a, quote, a voice crying in the wilderness, unquote, when he delivered the following sermon, In 1511, quote, This voice says that you are in mortal sin and that you live and die in it for the cruelty and tyranny you use in dealing with these innocent people. Tell me, by what right or justice do you keep these Indians in such a cruel and horrible servitude? On what authority have you waged a detestable war against these people? who dwelt quietly and peacefully on their own land. Later, he says, Are these not men? Have they not rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourselves? Unquote. Thus, it begins to make sense why people now choose to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day as a counter-celebration to Columbus Day. Columbus often gets credited for inspirational quotes like, quote, Nothing that results in human progress is achieved with unanimous consent, unquote. When we compare this quote with other quotes by and about Columbus and his men, we transition from somewhat inspirational to wholly genocidal. On October 11th, 1492, Columbus, in his diary, described his astonishment when the Arawak indigenous peoples, quote, came swimming to the ship's launches where we were, and brought us parrots, and cotton thread, and balls, and javelins, and many other things. And they traded them to us for other things which we gave them, such as small glass beads and bells. Columbus later wrote that they, quote, should be good and intelligent servants, for I see that they say very quickly everything that is said to them, and I believe that they would become Christians very easily, for it seemed to me, that they had no religion." Unquote. On October 14th, 1492, a few days later, Columbus observed, quote, "With 50 men we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want." Unquote. It was through this rationalization of indigenous peoples as servants and potential converts who could do what the Europeans pleased that created a domino effect of violence and subjugation. Problems only multiplied from there. One of Columbus's men, Michel de Cuneo boastfully described in detail how he raped a native woman, how she, quote, was unwilling, so treated me with her nails that I wished I had never begun, unquote. It is experiences like this that alarmed some colonists and prompted them to act. To illustrate, Bartolome de las Casas was a priest who accompanied Columbus when his men took over Cuba. The priest illustrated in detail examples of the atrocities. They attacked the towns and spared neither the children, nor the aged, nor pregnant women, nor women in childbed, not only stabbing them and dismembering them, but cutting them to pieces as if dealing with sheep in a slaughterhouse. They laid bets as to who, with one stroke of the sword, could split a man in two or could cut off his head. Or spill out his entrails with a single stroke of the pike. They took infants from their mothers' breasts, snatching them by the legs and pitching them head first against the crags, or snatched them by the arms and threw them into the rivers, roaring with laughter and saying, as the babies fell into the water, Boil there, you offspring of the devil! Unquote. These aspects of Columbus's four voyages to the Americas have not been part of the collective knowledge for very long. Only recently has the idealistic image of Columbus as this great conquistador become progressively exercised from the public discourse. So the stranger who sprayed Pirata Colon on the statue in Costa Rica is participating in telling the darker side of colonial history. Throughout the Americas and elsewhere, people are trying to wrestle with and rebel against the real consequences that colonialism had on Indigenous Peoples in the Americas. For these reasons, it appears more fitting to have Indigenous Peoples Day, as opposed to Columbus Day, alongside other national holidays, such as Independence Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and Veterans Day. So how might you celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day in Octobers to come? I recommend checking out the writings and work of important Indigenous leaders. For example, Dr. Daniel Wildcat of Haskell Indian Nations University offers a number of writings for how indigenous knowledge can be applied to save the planet from societal destruction. The Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian has numerous educational programs in place from year to year. Furthermore, Illuminative is a nonprofit dedicated towards supporting indigenous peoples in a more holistic way. Illuminative has developed a guide for communities to celebrate Indigenous Peoples' Day. What becomes clear from these resources is that we must dispel many of the misunderstandings about Indigenous Peoples, not in the name of white guilt, but in the name of American accountability, Indigenous coexistence, and solidarity. First, I've learned that it is misguided and incorrect to just lump all Indigenous Peoples together, Doing so would be similar to having an Alaskan speak on behalf of a Nicaraguan or a Canadian speak on behalf of a Jamaican. We could, rather, celebrate and appreciate the diversity of indigenous voices in North and South America, as well as other places around the world. Second, presenting first-hand accounts of Christopher Columbus's journal provides primary source evidence of human rights abuses largely ignored by prevailing narratives of Columbus Day. History informs us of what people are capable of and how they can rationalize and justify inhumane, murderous acts. Through this process, we may take measures to ensure that history does not get repeated. Third, we must stop pretending that indigeneity, or being indigenous, is a thing of the past or some over-idealized version of an earlier, simpler time. Indigeneity, or being indigenous, represents an ongoing battle to remain visible in the public eye. Finally, and this is important to non-natives such as myself, I've learned to use Indigenous Peoples' Day to cultivate humility and compassion. A few years back, I was humbled to be one of the only non-native participants at an Indigenous Educators' Conference at the University of Northern Arizona in Flagstaff. When Indigenous speakers introduced themselves, they did so in both English and in their native tongue. As a Scotch-Irish American, I felt like a total fish out of water when I introduced myself. But the experience taught me a lot. Most conference attendees taught on American Indian reservations and faced difficult educational problems, such as balancing math and science with lessons on tribal language and storytelling. These teachers are put in difficult positions of preserving indigenous knowledge while also preparing students for college and careers. The event opened me up to a world of American indigenous peoples that I thought I knew about, but in reality knew very little. I learned that it is important to support indigenous groups while taking care to not speak as though I were one of them. The phrase, stay in your lane, stands in my mind from a brutally honest friend of Pueblo descent with whom I accompanied to the conference. In sum, learning to coexist with indigenous groups is a multi-generational process. It won't be perfect, and it most certainly hasn't been, but avoiding or denying it would do society a great disservice. Furthermore, Celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day does not prohibit Euro-Americans from celebrating aspects of European culture other than the life of Christopher Columbus. Scottish Americans can still eat haggis, wear kilts, and participate in strength compositions during the Highland Games, while at the same time supporting and appreciating the varied voices of American Indigenous groups. Scandinavian Americans can celebrate the fact that some of the oldest functioning democracies, were started by the Vikings in the 9th and 10th centuries, while at the same time being appalled by the systemic, undemocratic mistreatment of indigenous peoples by Europeans and by current governments. That is what coexistence in the modern world is all about. It can inform how we might make better, more inclusive decisions in the future. Okay, so let's transition back to the topic of rebellion. Centuries after Columbus first touched down, Hispaniola witnessed the first slave-led rebellion in the New World. The rebellion happened in 1791 Haiti, located on the western side of Hispaniola. The present-day Dominican Republic is located on the eastern half. The French at one point held control over Hispaniola. And by this time, the Taino indigenous peoples that Columbus encountered were virtually wiped out and replaced by African slaves. The African slave trade brought a deadly form of malaria to the Americas, a sickness of which both Europeans and American indigenous peoples had no immunity. Africans were immune to this version of malaria. They quickly replaced indigenous slaves and European indentured servants. Malaria and yellow fever played a key role in the Haitian slaves successfully beating their French colonizers by the turn of the 1800s. Napoleon's army of French soldiers invaded Haiti in 1802, only to have the numbers dwindle from 60,000 soldiers to less than 10,000. Haiti thus became the first new world state to be founded by former slaves. Napoleon's colonial influence took a major blow, so much that he agreed to sell off the Louisiana Territory, to Thomas Jefferson, a $15 million purchase that added 827,000 square miles, including portions of present-day Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and more. Jefferson essentially paid $18 per square mile. $18 per square mile. The size of the United States doubled because of this event. A chief uniting force for the former Haitian slaves was the practice of the voodoo religion which was forbidden by the French. Voodoo is a syncretic religion that combines aspects of Catholicism and indigenous traditions from Africa. The term voodoo translates to spirit and holds that humans inhabit a world animated with unseen mysteries, angels, and spirits. To serve the spirits, voodoo followers will perform rituals and dances to restore the balance between people in the spirit world. Regardless of French attempts to stop the voodoo practice, the slaves continued to practice voodoo in secret, which increased morale and solidarity. Some historical accounts claim that the revolution wouldn't have achieved such success without the unifying force of voodoo. Indeed, if it wasn't for voodoo, the United States would not have doubled its territory so quickly and would look very, very different today. In the next podcast, we'll describe modern-day examples of interstate rebellion, along with rebellion within states. For example, which country gained its independence during the same year as the state of Missouri and had close to 50 different governments during its first 30 years? Stay tuned to find out. That's all I have for this week. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things. Thank you.